Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Crane's Cleveland podcast. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Thanks for joining us today. Here in Northeast Ohio, over the last year or so, it seems that a number of our institutions of higher education have had changes in leadership, including Case Western Reserve University, who appointed its new president last year, its 11th president. Eric Kaler is the new president of CWRU. He comes to us from the University of Minnesota, where he served as president there from 2011 to 2019 before coming to Case. President Kaler joins us today for The Landscape. Welcome, President Kaler. Glad you could be with us today. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Had you followed your original career path, our conversation would be about you being the youngest president in the history, vice president in the history of Exxon. So how does one go from that dream to the world of academia? Well, that's uh, you've done your homework if you know that. I did think that was a good goal to have when I was uh, was in college. Um, you know, I was gifted to, um, to have great parents, and I had a great chemistry teacher in high school, and my dad was a mechanic and a tinkerer. So I was pretty much set out to be a chemical engineer from um, from about age 16 or 17, and and that's what I wanted to do. And I thought the um, the path to to success would lead through through industry. But I also had some great uh, advisors and and mentors in in college and in graduate school. And uh, really, the turning point for me was being able to teach a class when I was a, about a third year graduate student, and I really just fell in love uh, with teaching and uh, the opportunity to help people learn. And so that turned me uh, 90 degrees uh, to a career in academics. You're, you're a first uh, generation college graduate. Was college something you was on the table right away with your parents? Or were they saying, Eric, oh, you're going to go so. to college? Yeah, very much so. My, uh, my mom and dad were both uh, uh, heavy readers of the books uh, were always stacked around the house. I don't think my father ever uh, watch television and uh, he was he was constantly learning and so it was very clear that the college was was going to be something in my future so you are an expert in surfactant compounds is that correct that's that's true i am so can, can you give us a layman's description of what that exactly means sure uh think think of soap right so oil okay. and water don't mix if you put in some soap and shake it up you get what's called an emulsion and that's because that soap molecule uh, is schizophrenic. It has a part that likes to be in oil and it has a part that likes to be in water. And so when you add a molecule like that to, uh, to oil and water, uh, you can form uh, a pretty stable uh, mixture. And uh, almost every product uh, you touch in the kitchen or, or uh, the bathroom uh, or the cosmetic table uh, is uh, is formulated with a surfactant. Uh, pharmaceutical okay. formulations all have surfa- almost all have surfactants. So they're very common uh, molecules, and uh, I think they're fascinating. You spent that several years there as president of the University of Minnesota. What are some of the things you were happy about in your tenure there? Some things you accomplished that you were really pleased with. So really, uh, two principal ones. Uh, one is we were able to hold. Uh, in-state uh, tuition uh, increases at under an average of about 1% uh, over the eight years I was president. And I think we were able to freeze tuition for for two or three years. Uh, so that really helped in college affordability. Um, and I was also able to, to have a team that advanced our research agenda dramatically. So uh, when I left at the end of uh, fiscal 2019, we were doing a billion dollars a year in funded research, which is a pretty impressive number. So those two things, affordability and a research enterprise, were really satisfying achievements for me. During your time as the president of the University of Minnesota, there were budget cuts and dealing with the legislature. Has something changed about the way we view education in terms of how we should fund it and, and the willingness to fund it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's very clear in the public space that uh, the 
our society values uh, higher education now much more as a private good uh, rather than a public good. So in the 1960s, um, doors opened. Uh, veterans came back from, from World War II uh, in, the, in the late 40s and early 50s, and, and higher education became a, uh, a popular thing, and it was available to a wide variety of people for whom it wasn't available uh, prior to the war. And it was funded uh, by and large by, by states. Uh, tuition at, at state universities was really remarkably low uh, in, in states uh, and, and governments saw uh, the value in having uh, an educated population. Uh, over time, um, that support has, has very dramatically uh, waned. Uh, when I left the University of Minnesota, uh, the state provided about 16 or 17 percent of the total budget uh, of the university. Uh, in the 1950s or 60s, it was well over, well over half. So a real shift in, in the value that, that uh, political uh, leaders uh, find in, in education. And um, I think that's a shame, obviously, because I think the road to success has always been paved by education and you, you never can go wrong uh, by, by furthering your education. Uh, but now the, the cost of that has shifted from, from uh, the public uh, to the private, to students and their families who are expected to carry uh, that tuition load at, at public institutions. At private institutions, of course, the, the game has always been different, uh, supported by endowments, uh, tuition typically uh, higher, financial aid typically more generous. And so again, a pub, a private education is also available uh, to people who want to, uh, who want to get it. But in the public sphere, I think there's been a clear change in priorities. We'll talk a, a bit more about this a little later in our conversation about a trained workforce, but aren't we cutting our nose off to spite our face? I mean, we we're always saying we need to train young people so that we can fulfill the, fill the jobs that we have here. So I completely agree. We're, we're cutting our nose to, to spite our face, and it, uh, it puzzles me because leaders will tell us that we need a trained workforce. There are only two ways to get a trained workforce. You either train the people who are already living here or you bring people from other countries who are trained elsewhere into your operations. Uh, there's no, those are the two ways to do it. So uh, if you're going to, to, to cripple or harm uh, the educational systems, uh, you've got to be willing to bring trained people from, from overseas, and that's not very popular either. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, making as much education available uh, at, a, at an affordable price. Uh, as we possibly can. After you stepped down as president at the University of Minnesota, you went back to the classroom for a year. What interested you about this job at Case Western Reserve University? Well, I did think that I could uh, could step back into a research and teaching uh, mode. And, um, you know, I just frankly failed at doing that. It, it, it was was uh, was still uh, in my in my blood to be uh, in the mix in a leadership position. Um, I, I was experienced at running uh, a large university. I was the provost at, a, at another large university previously. So uh, that's, that's sort of what I know how to do. And so when I realized that I, I had some more to give, I decided I would, uh, would be open to calls from, from a different kind of institution. I didn't want to lead another big public institution, uh, but a private institution uh, in an urban city, uh, a, a very good uh, AAU uh, institution, uh, probably not Division One sports. I, I served on the NCAA uh, leadership uh, committees for, for several years, and, and that was enough of that. 
Uh, and I wanted a, a school with a math science focus and a, and a medical uh, interest because those are kind of my sweet spots. But I also wanted to be at a comprehensive university because I think that's important. Uh, and so what I've just done is describe Case Western Reserve uh, for you. And so when uh, when the search committee reached out to me, uh, I was quite receptive to, to having a conversation uh, with them. And, and I'm very pleased that it worked out the way it did. What kind of conversations did you have with outgoing President Barbara Snyder before she left? Did she give you any advice? Uh, I, I've known Barbara for a long time because, of course, uh, I was the president at Minnesota when she was the president here. And uh, both of us, uh, both of those organizations are, are members of the Association of American Universities, the AAU. And uh, so, so I've known her uh, for, uh, for a while. Uh, we did not have a, a substantial conversation uh, during the interview process, of course, but uh, afterwards I had a, had a great conversation with her. Uh, we also had an interim president, uh, Scott Cohen, who uh, was terrific at bridging that uh, the gap between Barbara's departure and my arrival. And uh, I worked very closely with him to to uh, hit the ground running when I when I started last year. Eric Kaler joins us today for the Landscape of Crane's Cleveland podcast. He is the president of Case Western Reserve University. I'm Dan Paletta. Thank you for being with us. When we you got to Case and you started looking around and absorbing what's going on, what were some of the things you thought? Here's some challenges or some opportunities that I, that I really want to tackle. So really, really two. I'd say, well, let me say three big ones. Um, one was um, I felt that we had some additional uh, capacity uh, at the undergraduate level. Uh, in other words, our undergraduate class could be slightly uh, bigger. We could provide opportunities to, uh, to more students, uh, use our, our capacity uh, more fully. And so uh, we've embarked on a, a process that'll take a couple of years to grow the undergraduate population uh, by nine or ten percent, bring us to a, a population of about um, sixty-three hundred uh, undergraduates. Um, but the bigger one was really seeing um, the the research enterprise outside of the medical school and biomedical engineering uh, with a lot of opportunity to uh, to grow. Uh, a need for some built infrastructure, a need for better processes in the research office, uh, sort of back office things that enable the faculty to be uh, more competitive in grant writing. Uh, and so we've started to, to add some people in, uh, in that area, which will enable us to be, uh, to be more effective in, in getting grants from the federal government. And the third really was an opportunity to, uh, to interact with, uh, with the neighborhood, uh, with East Cleveland, with uh, Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, um, in a more comprehensive and, and deeper way. Um, you know, Dan, I came from, from a public uh, institution that had the land-grant mission uh, for, for the state of Minnesota. And what that means is that in addition to doing research and teaching, uh, we serve the people where we are. And so in an agricultural state, that means, that means an agricultural school, an extension, and a veterinary medicine uh, operation, et cetera. Uh, but in an urban institution like Case Western, it feels to me uh, that we should embrace some of that land grant uh, enthusiasm as well and be, uh, be a service to the community, be a place where, where people go for a legal clinic or for a health checkup or for a vaccination. Um, those kind of things, I think uh, Case Western Reserve can be uh, more present and more active uh, in the communities. And uh, we're, we're moving in that direction. I suppose it could become somewhat easy when you're in an academic institution, just be focused inwardly and not really worry or think about those things. So it's, it's nice to hear that, that the school wants to be more involved in the community. 
Well, you know, they call it an ivory tower for a reason. And uh, <laughs> I, I'd like us to get down out of it and, and be engaged in the in the neighborhoods. And, and there's enormous enthusiasm uh, amongst the faculty uh, and our students uh, to do that. So I'm, I'm uh, excited to be moving in that direction. What advantages does being a university circle offer, offer the university? Oh, what a magnificent place University Circle is. It really is just uh, stunningly uh, beautiful and, and so deep and rich in cultural uh, institutions. Um, you know, you never want to say there's no place else like it, but there might not be anywhere, any other place like it uh, in, uh, in, in the country or, or perhaps in the world. You know, the opportunity to have uh, world-class uh, healthcare institutions, uh, Cleveland Clinic and UH, uh, immediately next door, uh, a world-class orchestra, a world-class art museum, a terrific uh, natural history museum, and, and on and on. It's it's just uh, it's a fabulous place to be. I think it's a vibrant space uh, for our students, uh, and, and I'm wildly enthusiastic about its uh, its potential and uh, and its future. It's a real gem. During your time at Minnesota, you made it a real priority for companies to work closely with university researchers securing a lot of funds to make those projects happen. When it comes to research beyond the funding itself, why are those partnerships important between those private companies and a university? Well, several reasons. One is uh, the, the research product itself, right? So if you actually are fortunate enough to discover something or develop something uh, that's useful, that will improve somebody's quality of life or their health, um, the way to move that invention out to the public is through a business. That's how you do it. And so having connections with already established businesses enables those advances uh, to benefit uh, more people more quickly than if you don't have those existing relationships. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, while the research that we do and the education that we, we provide is important, the principal product, of course, at the end of the day uh, is our graduates. And so for our graduates to be able to be exposed during the course of their education to what opportunities are available uh, in the workplace, um, you know, and I'm not talking just about science and math, I'm talking about uh, connections to, to journalism, connections to communications, uh, connections to, to, to legal opportunities. All of those just provide a, a, a chance for our students to become better informed uh, and better prepared, frankly, for what the workplace is going to, to bring to them. Uh, and so the opportunity to leverage what we develop, the opportunities to grow uh, connections for our students are, are critically important. And, and the final piece is that it's a great way for our faculty members to keep a finger uh, on the pulse of, of what are critical problems in society, what, what kind of problems is it, is it useful for them to work on uh, in order to advance uh, the common good. Last fall, Case announced a major gift from KeyBank for the Partnership for Equity through Education and Community Impact. What are some of the things that partnership hopes to accomplish? Well, that is a terrific gift, and uh, we're very grateful to, to KeyBank for, for making that. And, and it really just helps us be a more uh, open and welcoming environment. Uh, scholarship support, uh, the ability to bring more uh, Cleveland Metropolitan School District uh, students uh, to Case with scholarship support. Uh, in connection to the community. So it's really consistent to, with uh, the goals I talked about earlier for, for us to be a, a connected and open and welcoming place. One of the things the university announced that the public side of the university's endowment had completely divested from investments in fossil fuel companies. And when you were at Minnesota, you dealt with trying to get some buildings name changed because of people, some of the buildings were named for people who had discriminated against blacks and Jewish people. 
This is a different thing. I mean, I know 50 years ago, presidents were dealing with the Vietnam War, but this the kind of efforts that you're making here, how much more difficult does it make your job? And I'm not saying it's not worth doing it. My, it's, it's more of a question. You have all these added things now that weren't part of a university president's, uh, wasn't on his plate or her plate 30 or 40 years ago. That's that's certainly true. And part of the, the challenge today, I think, is um, a, a heightened, let me say, uh, sensitivity is probably not the right word, and responsibility might not be the right word either, but uh, I feel like we need to respond to um, the values of our constituents, of our students and of our faculty uh, around some social justice elements that, uh, that probably weren't, were clearly not. Uh, at the forefront when uh, when universities were almost exclusively run by by white men it's uh, it's different and I think an institution like the University of Minnesota like case Western uh, should be responsive to to the social justice issues that that uh, that exist and that are are important to our to our community and so you know when you look at a building naming uh, conversation uh, I'm not at all happy to be engaged in a in a cancel culture kind of conversation, but I think it's possible to make a, a rational uh, decision uh, informed by by some perspective from 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 now, of course, but also uh, understanding what the the values uh, that that were in play at the day. Uh, these people were were making the decisions they were they were making, and you know if you view those as objectively wrong. I think you can have a conversation about about removing the honor that um, that previous generations have bestowed upon that person. So I think I think that's that's a good conversation to have. I think it's very important that it not be reactionary, uh, that it be thoughtful, it be based on facts, and be be based on uh, on history. On the on the divestment side of the house, again, uh, we have a very active. Uh, community that that uh, believes strongly uh, in in uh, the human causes of of climate change, um, believes uh, that we need to, to to control the production of CO two, believes that that fossil fuel companies uh, are not moving aggressively enough in in the right uh, direction. Um, in addition, uh, they have lately turned out to not be very good investments, so it wasn't really very difficult for us to. Uh, to to go with the wishes of our of our community uh, and divest of, of publicly traded um, fossil fuel uh, entities, uh, we do still have uh, a small amount of resource tied up in private uh, energy investments that uh, of which we're not going to make any more, and, and we'll let those unwind uh, over the course of time. But eventually, we will be completely free of those investments. As students return after winter break, and we are talking on January 10th, so the situation could change by tomorrow, but what's the situation with COVID on campus these days? I realized that the university required vaccinations, and did that go the way you planned, and, and how are things going? So uh, we did require vaccinations on July 15th, and we have 100% compliance with our vaccination uh, protocols, which do allow for some uh, very limited number of exemptions for, for religious uh, or medical reasons. Um, we have also mandated a booster shot. We want people to get a booster shot when they're eligible to, uh, to do that. Um, nonetheless, uh, we now have a positivity rate, uh, right around 10%, which is as high as it's ever been higher than it's ever been. I believe, um, we're encouraged by the fact that, uh, the county rates have dropped, uh, 27%, uh, week to week. And, uh, you know, there's some 
modeling that indicates that the peak is, is past us. Uh, but to accommodate that, we ask people to return to campus uh, effective uh, today. And then um, we're using distance uh, methods to teach uh, the large classes. If you have a laboratory or practicum class, uh, we're making accommodations for, the, for those to be in-person. Uh, our goal is to return to in-person instruction in, uh, in two weeks, uh, but that will depend, of course, on what the testing uh, tells us. Uh, we have uh, housing available for, for quarantine as we need it. Uh, we have uh, a you know, very large number of testing kits, and we're going to be uh, testing uh, until we can build a community uh, as we had uh, last semester. Uh, that has a very low positivity rate and uh, with appropriate masking uh, and vaccinations, I firmly believe we can return to uh, something resembling a normal uh, semester in a couple of weeks. We began our conversation about talking about new leadership here in Northeast Ohio. You had a chance to meet with Cleveland's new mayor, Mayor Justin Bibb. Can you share some of your conversation? What were some of the things you guys discussed? Sure. We had a, we had a great meeting. Uh, the president of, uh, of Cleveland State and Tri-C and I uh, met with the mayor, uh, very productive conversation. He completely understands um, to the point that we were visiting about earlier, um, you want economic development, you need to have education. It's not complicated. Uh, and so uh, I made it clear uh, to him that, that uh, my view is that you cannot have a great American city without a great research university and Case Western Reserve's responsibility, which we embrace, is to be that great American research university. And, uh, and we are, and we will continue to be, and we will grow and get bigger uh, and better. Uh, he appreciated that. He understands clearly uh, the role of, of higher education in economic development uh, and the creation of, a, of an ecosystem where, where startup companies can flourish and where uh, people want to come and build build careers and build build lives. Um, so I'm very excited about his leadership, uh, about his his energy, uh, and what he will bring to to the city. And look forward to being his partner. That's great, President Kaler. Thanks so much for joining us today. Wonderful conversation. Welcome to Cleveland. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Eric Kaler is the president of Case Western Reserve University. He joined us today for the Landscape of Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletta. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk again soon.